0: hello everyone so let's talk about colon cancer screening if patient is at average risk so you start the screening at age 45 and colonoscopy is done every 10 years if you're going for fecal occult blood testing or maybe you're going for the fecal immunochemical testing then you do it every year and if you are doing fecal immunochemical testing that is dna then you do that every one to three years or if you're going for CT colonography, that you do every five years. There is one more thing which you can do is that is flexible sigmoidoscopy, which is done every five years or every 10 years. If you are also doing annual FIT like if you are doing annual FIT, then you can do flexible sigmoidoscopy every five, every 10 years. Otherwise, flexible sigmoidoscopy is done every five years. Earlier there was only colonoscopy which was used for screening but nowadays we have different techniques such as the fecal occult blood testing, FIT, FIT DNA and CT colonography. Someone is doing CT colonography, do remember that it is done every 5 years. FIT DNA testing is done every 1 to 3 years. FOBT or FIT testing is done every yearly and uh, early the colonoscopy is done every 10 yearly. This is when a patient is at average risk now if a patient is at high risk or what you say the first degree relative is involved or there is a high risk of the adenomatous polyp adenomatous polyp if you'd figure out and you saw that it is more than equal to 10 mm in size and there is high grade dysplasia or villous elements are present so adenomatous polyp of size of more than 10 mm high grade dysplasia villous elements are present that time you do colonoscopy at age 40 or 10 years prior to the age of diagnosis of the first degree relative so do remember if you are confused let me give you a scenario if a patient is like 40 years old and his brother or someone is involved and he had the colon cancer diagnosed at age 52 so what do you think now is that usual age of diagnosis is 45 like for screening is 45 but since the first degree relative is involved you prefer going 10 years earlier uh, compared to the age of the first degree relative so if here in this case age of the brother was 52 so you think about age 42 but one more criteria is there colonoscopy is done at age 40 if there is a high risk of the adenomatous polyp or family history so now you're confused whether you want to do it right now, like right away at the age 40 or you have to wait for two more years and do it after two years. But do remember, in the guideline they say that either you do it 10 years prior to the age of the diagnosis of the first degree relative or colonoscopy is done at age 40, whichever come first. We always ignore this line, whichever come first and then that's why we are confused. So whichever first come first is very important to remember. Yeah now repeat every five years now here we have to repeat every five years or every 10 years if fdr diagnosed at age more than 60 so if the family relative is diagnosed after 60 years of age let's suppose the family member is diagnosed as 70 years of age and now you are planning on doing the colonoscopy so you do the colonoscopy at age 40 okay for that patient but You repeat it after every 10 years because he was diagnosed very late but if a patient is less than 60 years of age like the relative first degree relative was less than 60 years of age when he was diagnosed with colon cancer then you repeat it every five years this is pretty tough to remember but if you will read it carefully you'll figure out just google the colon screening guidelines and you will get it and you just go through once patients with ulcerative colitis you also have to screen them so you start the screening at 10 8 to 10 years after the diagnosis so if they were diagnosed with ulcerative colitis today then after 10 years you are going to screen or start screening for the colon cancer colonoscopy is done every one to three years after that every one to three years you you will be doing the colonoscopy in case of the patient with ulcerative colitis so if a patient comes to you with colorectal cancer risk and the patient has first degree relative with the uh, sporadic uh, colorectal cancers so or there is a high risk of the adenomatous polyp noted more than 10 millimeter size there is two, re- uh, two time increased risk of the colon cancer therefore you try to diagnose uh, it early and uh, particularly those with relative diagnosis at age less than 60 or those who have first degree relatives and those who have family history of hereditary colon cancer syndrome such as the lynch syndrome are even likely at greater risk. Patients who have a first-degree relative of colorectal cancer diagnosed at age less 60 should undergo screening colonoscopy beginning at age 40 or 10 years prior to the relative's age at the diagnosis, whichever is earlier, and repeated every 5 years thereafter. This contrasts with the screening test, average individual, which is recommended beginning at the age 45. Okay, so you remember this thing. Now they will give you an option such as do you want to start a low dose aspirin or something. So do remember. Low dose aspirin is associated with a small decrease in the colorectal cancer risk. But benefit is largely offset by increased gastrointestinal bleeding risk. Okay. Because low dose aspirin can increase the risk of GI bleeding. And it reduces the risk of colorectal cancer to very low extent. That's why we see the risk and benefit ratio. But here risk is overcoming the benefit therefore we don't give low dose aspirin the decision to initiate low dose aspirin is largely determined by the cardiovascular benefit if a patient is also having some kind of cardiovascular risk then you can start let's suppose patient age is 50 to 69 and a 10 year cardiovascular risk is more than equal to 10 percent then we can consider daily aspirin for both colorectal cancer and cardiovascular risk prevention but it is generally not recommended if a patient's age is less than 50 okay and uh, yeah and diet rich in red and processed meat tobacco and heavy alcohol use are the risk factor for the colorectal cancer however these risk factors are much weaker compared to the family history so family history is more predominant risk factors as compared to the diet and the tobacco use and the alcohol and all these things so what do you do is screening you prefer and also you will suggest about the avoidance of all these substances Still, the first thing you do is to screen. Patient who has a first degree relative of colorectal cancer diagnosed at age less than 60 themselves are at increased risk of CRC. This patient should undergo screening colonoscopy beginning at age 40 or 10 year prior to the relative's age at diagnosis, whichever is earlier, and repeat every five years thereafter. Okay, moving on to the next point now, let's talk about the hip fracture. So, patient comes to you and the patient's blood pressure is very very high like 160 and 85 pulse is very high and patient is having a hip fracture that is the it is like a intra hip fracture so what are you gonna do in this case are you going to perform the surgery immediately or you are going to wait for the blood pressure control or what are you gonna do so see hip fractures due to fall are common in elderly patient and classified as either intracapsular that is femoral head or neck fracture or extra-capsular, which is intratrochentric or subtrochentric fracture so firstly you have to remember this classification intracapsular fracture includes the head fracture and the neck fracture but extracapsular fracture include the intratrochentric fracture or subtrochentric fracture femoral neck fractures typically presents with pain without significant echymosis. And have a high risk of avascular necrosis. Okay, so femoral neck fractures there is significant pain, but there's no echymosis. Okay, but there is a high risk of avascular necrosis. And extra capsular fractures are at high risk of displacement and usually have visible echymosis. So, if you see visible echymosis from the echymosis itself, you can figure out that this might be a case of extra capsular fracture. And if there is severe pain but there is no echymosis, think about the femoral neck fracture which is at high risk of avascular necrosis. But both type of fracture should be evaluated by an orthopedic surgeon as most require surgical correction with either the arthroplasty or open reduction and internal fixation. In elderly patients who are stable and ambulatory prior to the fracture, surgery within 48 hours is associated with low morbidity mortality and lower risk of the pressure ulcers and pneumonia so if a patient is elderly let's suppose 80 something 50 70 80 something then in that situation you and if a patient is stable there is no ambulatory defect then within 48 hours you go for surgery it reduces the mortality risk so surgery should be performed promptly to increase the likelihood of success of recovery okay studies have shown that the internal reduction the i mean like the external reduction or traction doesn't improve the fracture of the hip joint so you are never gonna suggest about the external traction or something okay next is non operative management is also not used if uh, but non operative management can be used for the patient who are non ambulatory or at very end stage terminal illness okay so in that case you can go for non-operative management surgery may be delayed up to 72 hours to stabilize acute life-threatening medical condition now let's talk about what are the acute life-threatening medical condition where you have to delay the surgery for 72 hours so active cardiac condition that increases the risk of perioperative cardiovascular risk require further evaluation and treatment before non-emergency non cardiac surgery So what are those things if a patient is having unstable angina or patient recently had an MI that time you delay the surgery for 72 hours. If a patient has decompensated heart failure delay the surgery. If the patient has significant arrhythmia let's suppose symptomatic bradyarrhythmia or high grade AV blockage supraventricular tachycardia symptomatic or new onset ventricular tachycardia in all the situation what you do is you delay the surgery. Or if severe valvular diseases are there like severe aortic stenosis, symptomatic mitral stenosis, then in that situation also you delay the surgery. So, unstable angina or recent MI, decompensated heart failure, significant arrhythmia, symptomatic bradycardia, high grade AV blockage, supraventricular tachycardia, symptomatic or answered ventricular tachycardia. In all these situations you de- delay the surgery. Severe valvular diseases, severe aortic stenosis, symptomatic mitral stenosis, That time, you delay the surgery. Metastrenosis, if symptomatic. Severe aortic stenosis, okay. But, longer delay are associated with an increased risk of complication. Preoperative cardiac stress testing prior to the non-cardiovascular surgery is generally advised only if it would otherwise indicate in the absence of any surgery, okay. So, 160 and 85 mm of temperature, blood pressure was not that severe for this patient, this patient was pretty stabilized okay you can go for the surgery in this patient Hip fracture in elderly are common risk and should be managed as early within 48 hours if a patient who are ambulatory and stable non-operative management is reserved for patient who are non ambulatory or have advanced dementia or are medically unstable I already mentioned about the medically unstable situations to you okay Now let's talk about another topic. If a patient comes to you and she give a word to a newborn, newborn is having cleft lip, isolated cleft lip. She says that her other child also has a cleft lip. And when you notice mother carefully, you also saw that she also has a cleft lip which is like been operated or something. So do remember, cleft lip with or without cleft palate is typically a multifactorial disorder. So there are many factors involved for the cleft lip or cleft palate. It has been associated with the use of teratogenic agents, commonly alcohol during the pregnancy. A careful and thorough history is important in making the correct diagnosis. Reconstruction of the lip is generally performed at approximately three months of age. So if someone comes to you and they have cleft lip, so you will tell the patient that after three months we can go for reconstruction. According to the rule of 10, 10 pawn weight, 10-week age and 10-gram of hemoglobin is needed for the surgery. So if a baby is 10 pawn, if it is 10-week, that is 3 months approximately and 10-gram of hemoglobin is available, then you go for the surgery. Okay? So, left, left lip without cleft palate is typically a multifactorial disorder it has been associated with the teratogenic agent and the mode of inheritance can be autosomal dominant autosomal recessive, X-linked recessive so it doesn't affect it doesn't matter whatever the mode of inheritance it, it can be multifactorial reconstruction of the cleft lip is generally performed approximately 3 months of the age according to the rule of 10, remember 10 point of weight, 10 weeks of age and 10 gram of hemoglobin so What I was thinking during this situation was maybe this is an X-linked situation because the mother is having X chromosome and uh, mother is affected and two sons are affected. But no, that's not the situation because it is a multifactorial situation. And reconstruction is generally performed at 10 weeks of age. You have to tell that to the mother when the weight of the baby will be 10 pounds and when the hemoglobin will be 10 grams. So this is what you would say. Okay. Okay. Now let's talk about conditions that alter the thyroid binding globulin concentration. So thyroid binding globulin concentration can be affected by various things. First, what are the things which increases the thyroid binding globulin and what are the things which decreases the thyroid binding globulin. So thyroid binding globulin is increased because of estrogen and estrogen like in any situation where you see there is high estrogen, maybe pregnancy, maybe someone using oral contraceptive pills. Or maybe hormone replacement therapy, or maybe someone using estrogenic medication such as tamoxifen. Or in case of acute hepatitis, this uh, thyroid binding globulin is increased. In acute hepatitis, what happens? Suddenly the thyroid binding globulin is released, and therefore you see that there is high thyroid binding globulin. Estrogen can increase the thyroid binding globulin, such as pregnancy or contraceptive use, HRTs, estrogenic medications such as tamoxifen. When do you see that there is decrease in the thyroid binding globulin? That is when you see that there is androgenic hormones. So if someone is taking testosterone or androgenic hormones, thyroid binding globulin can low or can decrease. If someone is using high dose of glucocorticoid or someone is having hypercholesterolemia, cortisolism, sorry, hypercortisolism or high dose of glucocorticoid someone is taking, then you see that there is decrease thyroid binding globulin. Hypoproteinemia at the time also protein is lost from the body therefore this thyroid binding globulin is again a protein in nephrotic syndrome and starvation someone is not eating well or maybe someone is having chronic liver disease acute liver disease tbgb the thyroid binding globulin increases but in chronic liver disease it decreases okay so if a patient comes to you is taking levothyroxine now he's having symptoms of hypothyroidism and someone asks you that why is this so then you will say because the, and someone is on estrogen or maybe taking o- OCPs, then the mechanism will be thyroid hormone transport and tissue delivery impairment in that because, like, increase in that. Okay, so that you have to remember. So, more than 99% of the circulating thyroid hormone is bonded to the plasma, a larger share is carried by thyroid binding globulin with additional carriers, including transthyroidine, albumin, and other proteins thyroid binding globulin is one protein there are other proteins as well tans thyroidin, albumin and uh, other proteins biologically active free thyroid hormone is rapidly cleared by the kidney so the protein uh, binding protein ensures the adequate hormone is available for the delivery to the peripheral tissue okay so it, elevated estrogen level as seen in pregnancy or patient taking oral contraceptive pills or stimulated stimulate this hepatic synthesis of the thyroid binding globulin so this stimulates the hepatic synthesis of the globulin. The patient with normal thyroid functions can increase thyroid hormone production to saturate the additional protein binding sites. But those with primary hypothyroidism are unable to increase the thyroid hormone synthesis. Oral contraceptive use in these patients can induce a relative hypothyroid state. Why? Because in normal individual what happen when thyroid binding globulin is increased thyroid hormone also increases to compensate the empty sites on the thyroid binding globulin but if someone is using someone is already having hypothyroidism and his thyroid is, uh, the patient's thyroid is not able to synthesize enough thyroxine that time when there is pregnancy or increase in the oral contraceptives and thyroid binding globulin is increase thyroid hormone is not in that amount therefore the patient has a relative hypothyroid state therefore what we try to do here in this case is to increase the dose of levothyroxine. So whenever you start a contraceptives, increase the dose of levothyroxine. If patients want to become pregnant, increase the dose of levothyroxine. And there are some factors which decreases the thyroid binding globulin such as endotonic steroids, glucocorticoids, chronic liver disease, protein losing states. Also, there are salicylates that do not have significant effect on the plasma protein level but this alters the Physiology by displacing the thyroid hormone from the protein binding sites. So if someone is using salicylates, it will Displace the thyroid hormone from the thyroid binding site and therefore in when someone is using salicylate you will see that He is relatively at a hyperthyroid stage because of the thyroid hormone released from the thyroid binding protein site Therefore there is excess. Okay now let's talk about some other drugs bile acid resin such as cholestyramine and some dietary elements such as iron, fiber, and acid decreases the levothyroxine absorption. So levothyroxine should be taken 4 hours prior before these substances are given. So if someone is taking bile acid resin such as cholestyramine, and they are asking why it is impairing the thyroid hormone level, you will say because of the absorption. Or someone is taking iron, fiber or anti-acid, then also you will say because of the absorption. Next, multiple medication can interfere with the thyroid hormone level by either inducing uh, or inhibiting hepatic metabolism of the thyroid hormone. So metabolism is affected by the cytochrome P450 inhibitors and inducers. For example barbiturates which induces the thyroid hormone level and uh, metabolism and amiodarone inhibit it, inhibits it, amiodarone inhibits it and barbiturate increases. Patient taking these medications may require to modify the doses, okay, to maintain a euthyroid state. Glucocorticoid, beta blocker and propylthyroidal uracil inhibits the deiodi- peripheral deiodination of T4 to T3. So glucocorticoid use, beta blocker use, propylthyroidal use causes hypothyroid state because they inhibits the peripheral deiodination and therefore T3 is not formed which is the active component. Patient feels hypothyroid. Therefore glucocorticoid, beta blocker and propylthyroidal are used for the treatment of thyrotoxicosis and thyroid syndrome. Because it inhibits the peripheral deiodination and thus reducing the amount of thyroid hormone. Lithium, potassium iodine and Lugol's I- I solution contains the iodine and the potassium iodide. Therefore inhibit the thyroid hormone secretion. So secretion is inhibited because of the lithium and all this things. However, estrogen does not affect the secretion. Estrogen impairs the transport and the tissue delivery. Because of the low thyroid state. An increase in the thyroid-binding globulin. There is hypothyroid state in such patients. So most thyroid hormone in circulation is bonded to the plasma protein, primarily to the t- TBG. Estrogen stimulates the hepatic synthesis of TBG. Hypothyroid patients elevates the estrogen level. With elevated estrogen levels, such as the pregnancy and OCPs, require high dose of levothyroxine to saturate the multiple number of the binding site. All right. So I think this is it for this lecture. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're understanding what I'm trying to say and explain it to you guys. Thank you.